Now it's time for the Gene Shepherd Show. feeling that it's all going to blow over? You know, it's, it's really, it's all going to blow over. It's all going to be uh, <laughs> hotsy-totsy all the way in from here on out. You know, hunky-dory? Uh, oh, I, I'm sorry if I'm using phrases which have little or no meaning to you. Uh, uh, does the phrase hunky-dory, does uh, this relate only again to a Midwesternism? Hunky-dory? You've heard it before? Oh, you have. Well, that's good. You see, we, we Americans speak a common language, and uh, it's different. Oh, yes, we do very common. <laughs> oh, exceedingly common. And the other night, uh, when I was on the air, I, I said uh, something to the effect of uh, chewing the fat. I said, uh, this is, I'm afraid, is, a, is an expression that is an American expression. Since we're all Americans, we must, we must understand each other. We must, you know, grasp the hand in common uh, distrust. Put your hand right out here, buddy. Uh, where I can see it. Yeah, I'm certainly glad to see you. <laughs> I remember one time I used to do on the air. Did I ever tell you about that? Long, many, many eons ago. Oh, we're going to have things to answer for. Believe me, we're all going to have things to answer for. When we get up before that great judge, there's going to be many things that are going to come out of that book that are going to look awful tough. Like, for example, me. I, I know. I know there's one thing I'm going to have to talk about, and I'm going to have to explain... I used to do a program of recorded music called Bing Sings. And this was on a, on a radio show, ancient times, back way back in my Paleolithic days. I would come on and I would say, Bing Sings. And right at that point, see, I'd fade it down and say, Yes, Bing Sings, brought to you by Sam Pollock. 
Sam Pollock, the painless dentist who features plates with a smile. I'd fade it down. I'd say, friends, Bing will be with us in just a moment to sing Red Sails in the Sunset. But first, I'd like to ask you about your plates. Do your plates add to your personality? Do they give your face that wonderful warm look of a man who is smiling inwardly? Dr. Sam Pollock's plates with a smile are guaranteed to fit perfectly. Plates with a smile, I'm going to have to answer for that. Well, <laughs> no, I honestly did. I did a show, and his, his, his uh, slogan was Dr. Sam Pollock, the plates with a smile. And uh, it's kind of, I, I, of course, you can't help but conjure up pictures of Scrooge sitting there wearing a pair of plates that smile. <laughs> sitting there, you know, the old, uh, the old wonderful We Trust You Forever Loan Company. And this man, I, I'll never forget one time I used to go to a bank when I was about 12 years old. And I'd go down there, and I was working. I was just a kid, you know, and I was working for this grocery store on the weekends. And uh, I'd come in once in a while at night, maybe 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon sometimes when, when I had a half a day of school. And the guy would send me down to the bank to get pennies and nickels. And there was a man named Mr. Weatherby down there at the bank. It was one of these little banks. And, and Mr. Weatherby would look out at me from behind that, from behind that thing, you know. And I, I, of course, a bank was such an official thing with me when I was a kid that, that I never went into this thing other than just to go in and get pennies and stuff. Well, I remember Weatherby. Mr. Weatherby would look out at me, and he had plates, real plates. Do you know what I mean by real store teeth? The kind of store teeth, oh, yes, oh, oh, yeah, you can hear little springs and stuff go when he opens his mouth, <laughs> you know, and, and they have this gigantic, wonderful, brilliant, bright whiteness, and I, I used to associate Mr. Weatherby with my grandmother, who had store teeth but never would admit it, and uh, I remember one time I'm, I'm uh, walking down the street or something with my grandmother and hanging out over the, they don't do this anymore, or did they ever do this in the East? Hanging out over the sidewalk was a gigantic sign, and the sign was in the shape of a pair of teeth. You know, really, big teeth, and they're sort of half open, like they were just to bite in, just about to bite into a prune. These two old teeth were hanging there, and over it it says uh, painless, or something. <laughs> something like that. And, uh, and I said to my grandmother, because it was never, I didn't know that you never talked about stuff like this. I said, Grandma, is this where you got your teeth? Because they looked exactly like my grandmother's teeth hanging up there. And boy, there was this terrible moment. And my mother, of course, uh, later on, of course, are these things. And, and to get back, though, to our common language, putting it out there, you just put it right out here. Why, you just put your hand right out here. You have come to the right place. Now, it's well known that in our today, our world of the now, our world of the 20th century, that friendship has died. That no longer is there such a thing as a personal touch, brothers. No longer can one man say to another man, you are my friend and I trust you. No, we are living in the 20th century, friends. We are living in the time of hell and damnation. So I want you to put your hand right out and put it right here and grasp my hand in electronic friendship. I want you to come forward. I want you to put your hands on the top of that radio. Do you feel that warm, warm? Do you feel that heat, that warmth coming up right there, coming up through your knuckle bones, through your wrist bones, and up through your up through your elbow bones? That's love. Put it there. You have come to the right place. Well, I'm talking about that the other night. I'm I'm discussing uh, 
you know, chewing the fat. And so I figured that it was a Midwesternism, and I said, well, we've got this common American language anyway, at least that, that uh, an American can pop up out of the trenches someplace and holler, hey, chew the fat, Mac, and every other American for miles would know that they're chewing the fat. Well, I get a letter from this Englishman. He says, Dear, <coughs> yes, sir, I listened to the program the other night. I heard you mention, dear, heard you mention what you call an Americanism, chew the fat. Well, as far as I know, this expression has been used for countless generations. And as a matter of fact, was one of my favorite expressions of my dear old Manny, who used to refer to my, my now sainted mother as a prime fat chewer. My mother was a chewer of the fat. Thank you, Sir Geoffrey Chaucer Rhodes. One of the very few times I've ever gotten a letter from a sir. You know, I put it there. Uh, you've come to the right place, oh, friend. So give me, please, once upon a time, as we beat the drum of perdition, the Wilmington Supreme Court has upheld a divorce given a man whose wife, by the evidence, constantly incited their boxer dog to bite him. On at least three occasions, as a result of dog bites, the husband required medical treatment, said the justice who wrote the opinion, handed down Friday. The case reached the high tribunal on an appeal by the wife from a Supreme Court granted divorce to the husband, Layton, on the grounds of extreme cruelty. The family lives in nearby Newark. He is a chemist and in his 40s. The opinion described him as a man of almost superhuman forbearance. The judge said that on various other occasions the wife ripped off her husband's clothes, choked him with his own necktie, kicked him, leaving lasting scars, struck him with an electric fan, threatened him with a butcher knife, hit him without warning while in bed, threw hot coffee on him, went after him with a handsaw, and threatened to hit him with an electric iron, a milk bottle, and a hammer. Beside that, the justice went on to enumerate, she heaped wordy abuse on the husband calling him insulting names and mocking his baldness and his hearing aid. The two were married for ten years. The husband had two daughters by his first marriage. The elder one left home, the justice said, because she no longer could endure her stepmother's, quote, unreasonable discipline and also physical punishment. The court's opinion said that the breakup came when the wife slapped the younger daughter and the dog, always on the wife's side, leaped at the girl. The husband went to the daughter's assistance and in the ensuing melee was himself attacked by the dog. He said he had to pry the dog's jaws open from where he had been bitten. The wife's lawyer argued that extreme cruelty hadn't been proven because the husband, quote, was not in fear of his life. The justice concluded, it is obvious that this was not a happy home and that at least these parties were incompatible. Chew the fat indeed. Now, these, it's obvious to me that these are mole people. I, I have come to the conclusion that there is a, a whole population of us who are not recorded in fiction, 
who are not written about, who are not moaned over nor discussed, and in fact, in some ways, are not even worthy of it. Mole people, are you aware that among us, their walks, if that phrase covers their means of locomotion, a population of mole people, whose, whose passions, if they can be called that, burn like a low flame on an ancient stove, barely flickering, barely sputtering, a tiny, almost extinguished spark of the divine flame of existence and life. And who, when in the heat of what, for want of a better word, we can call their, their most flaming passion, are barely seen to move. The mole people. Do you know what I mean by the mole people? The people who really are not capable of emotion, real emotion. Well, they can, they can, they can get irritated when they're pushed in bust lines and things like that, or when there's a busy signal on the telephone. They, they get irritated over the wrong things. But, but the mole people. Well, there they are. You wonder even how they reproduce their kind. Oh, speaking of mole people, this is W-O-R-A-M and F-M, New York. And uh, This is W-B-A-I, New York. Till 12 midnight. This is the 40th year of W-O-R. Do you realize that? You know, you hear them talking on the air about it? And I don't know whether you know anything about that or what that means to you, but do you realize that... that uh, uh, I just did that. That, that 40 years is... Is almost a uh, well. Forty years in the radio business is like twenty-five light years in any other industry. It really is. And what's really scary about it is that there are some people around here <laughs> who were here very shortly after the sputtering flame was breathed into the final triodes of the of the final amplifier of of W O Y when she began to put out a two hundred and sixty watt signal low these many eons ago. There are some guys who are still here. How's that for a rut? <laughs> yeah, well, you know that Thomas Edison was our morning man. Long time ago. Did you see the picture of him standing down there by the microphone? <laughs> huh? Yeah, he came on there. He. That's true. Well, how do you think John Gambling got his job? He had plenty of friends. Yeah, well, that's right. Well, Al, wasn't Edison one of the early engineers? Or, or was he doing the exercise show here in the morning? We'll be here until uh, <laughs> midnight. I know. I know all about it. I've heard. I, I, uh, it's funny business. The mole people. Uh, I, I'll tell you what, what the danger of the mole people is. You know what is it, the mole people? These are people who are not really interested in and can't find it within their scope to become uh, to become engaged in life. You know, who, who can't reach out and grab the handles. And these are the people who are the quickest people to want to go to war. These are the people who love the idea of war and all the rest of the things that make up for a kind of artificial excitement and stimuli which they would never get out of existence. 
You know what I mean by that? It's, 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 it's the little mole people. Did, did you ever read the story of, of Heinrich, of, uh, what is it, wasn't his first name, Heinrich Himmler? Was it Heimlich? Heinrich Himmler? You ever read the story of Himmler? His, his, the life story of Himmler before Hitler came along and before the war started, uh, the war was, it, nothing, the war was made for this guy. I mean, it was, it was his moment of absolute glory. He, there was nothing else for him. And boy, what scares me is that, is that great horde of people who sit in the subways and, and the only movement that, that you see stirring in their soul is when somebody steals their seat. That's the only time they have any excitement during the day or when they hit their wife in the mouth. You know? That's the truth. Uh, th- th- there's a whole population of them, and, and it always baffles me to find writers and people, and, and well-meaning people, you know, who march around with signs, who, uh, who, who because the fact of the fact that they are so involved in life, that they will march with signs, they don't seem to be able to understand the great mass of the population of people who are just moles, you know, who are just waiting for something, just waiting for somebody to hit. And, and the moment that that somebody shows up, that's the moment they live. Let me tell you, I, I knew a guy, I knew one man, a, a mole. By the way, you know where the mole person, one of the places where mole people find their greatest expression is in the world of the engineers. The world, the world of the people who live by figures and facts. And I remember one time having an engineer who worked with me. And at any, any given moment when you, could, when you could let him get on to the subject, he would tell you about the time he got in a fight in the cafeteria. He loved that story. He'd say, you know, I ever tell you about the time I was over in, in Wolford's cafeteria. I'm in line there, and all of a sudden this wise guy comes up behind me, and he starts jabbing me in the elbow. I turned around. I said, quit pushing me, you know. I didn't want any trouble. The guy says, mind your own business, Mac. Well, I said, what do you mean, mind your own business? I'm just going through here, just picking up some pie. And the next thing I know, the guy's pushing around. He, he's, he wants to fight. Well, I'll tell you what I did. I pulled, I just let him, I let him have it, man. Within 30 seconds, that guy spread out there under the... Oh, yeah. Well, of course, it was his big moment. You know, speaking of the mole people, did you read the aftermath of the guy that, that broke the snake cages? Did you read about... Hey, come on, watch it here, boy. <laughs> this is worse than Ellen. <laughs> did, uh, did you ever... Uh, did you hear the aftermath of the, sm- of the, of the snake guy last week? You want to hear about it? You remember the guy that went through and busted up this... They caught him. They caught this guy. Police today held a man who admitted smashing 46 cages, which held poisonous snakes in the St. Louis Zoo. Friday, watchmen at the zoo reported a man tore a screen off the reptile house, ripped off the brass retaining bar, and plunged through the building, smashing cages. Police said when he was picked up, I get worked up once in a while. He was found sleeping on a sidewalk on the north side of Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. One of the great mass of the unrecorded. Well, look, man, I get worked up too once in a while. Somehow, you and I have something in common. And, and I'm, I'm not quite sure what it is. I... I I'm not quite sure what it is. It's, it's like George Ade said when talking about the great mass of mole people. 
Once there was a home-like beanery where one could tell the day of the week by what was on the table. The stroke or this food bazaar, had been in the business for 20 years, and she never had earned her heart. In fact, she'd taken it home three times over. The prune joke never touched her. And she had herself trained so as not to hear any sarcastic cracks about the oleo. She prided herself on the atmosphere of culture that permeated the establishment and on the fact that she did not harbor any improper characters. A good many improper characters came around and sized up the layout and then blew. It was a sure enough boarding house, such as many of our best people know all about, even if they don't tell. The landlady was doing what she could to discourage the beef trust, but she carried a heavy line of oatmeal. She had oatmeal to burn, and sometimes did. And she often remarked that spinach had iron in it and was great for the blood. One of her pet theories was that rice contained more nutriment than could be found in spring chicken. But the boarders allowed that she had never seen a spring chicken. In the cast of characters were many old favorites. There was the lippy boy with the Williams and Walker shirts who knew the names of all the ball players and could tell when there was a good variety show in town. Then there was the other kind. Hold it. Hold it. Hold it. This is one of the most beautiful descriptions in all of English literature of a true mole person. Listen carefully. The reason I'm reading this magnificent little George Aid fable is because of his description of people who are never described in literature, in drama, who are never carved into frescoes, who never decorate mosaics. Then there was the other kind, with a straw-colored mustache and a prominent Adam's apple who was very careful about his pronunciation. He belonged to a social purity club that had a yell. His idea of a big hurrah was to get in a parlor with a few sisters who were under the age limit and sing the bass part of Pull for the Shore. And then there was the old boarder. He was the landmark. Having lived in boarding houses and hotels all his life, he had developed a gloom that surrounded him like a morning fog. He had a way of turning things over on his fork as if to say, well, don't know about this. And he never believed anything he saw in the papers. He said the papers printed them things just to fill up. And the Circassian princes that brought in the victuals paid more attention to him than to anyone else. Because if he didn't get egg on his lettuce, he was liable to cry all over the tablecloth. Then there was the chubby man who came in every evening and told what had happened at the store that day. And there was the human anteater who made puns. One of the necessary features of a refined joint is the slender thing who likes music and is taking lessons on the piano and is usually the daughter of the establishment. This boarding house had one of those mother and child combinations that was a dream. Daughter was full of Kubelik and Joseph Hoffman. Away back in the pines somewhere, there was a father who was putting up for the outfit. She was a consistent little booster. Mother's job was just to boost and sit around and root. 
If what Mother said was true, then Effie's voice was a good deal better than it sounded. She said the teachers were just crazy about it, and all of them agreed that Effie ought to go to Paris or Milan and learn to, learn to study opera. The slangy boy with the ragtime shirt went them one better. He said all the phony Melbas in the country ought to pull for the old country and wait till they were sent for. <laughs> At this same boarding house, there was a widow whose husband had neglected to die. Being left all alone in the world, she had gone out to make her way, since which time she had gained about 30 pounds and was considered uh, great company by the young man. Necessarily, there was a pale lady who loved to read and who stuck to the patterns that appeared in the ladies' magazines. Then there was the married couple, without any furniture or children of their own. And the only reason they didn't take a house was that Henry had to be out of town so often. Henry's salary had been hooped $500 a year, and she was just beginning to say gown instead of dress. She had the society column for breakfast, and things looked dark for Henry. For many months, this conventional group of ordinary size six and seven-eighths mortals had lived in a rut. At each mealtime, they rounded up and mechanically devoured what was doled out to them and folded their napkins and broke ranks. Each day was the duplicate of the one before it, and life had petered down to a routine. One evening, just as they had come in for their vermicelli, a new boarder glided into their ranks. She was a tall gypsy queen with about $12,000 worth of clothes that fit her everywhere and all the time. And she had this watch me kind of walk. The same being a cue for all the other girls to get out their hardware. When she moved up to the table and began to distribute a few sample smiles so as to indicate the character of her work, the musical team went out with the tide. The grass widow curled up like an autumn leaf. The touch-me-not married lady dropped into the scrub division. The lady who read was shy a spoon and was afraid to ask for it. The men were all goggle-eyed, and the help was running into chairs and dropping important parts of the menu on the floor. Presently, the landlady came in and explained. She said that Mrs. Williams was in the city to shop for a couple of days and that her husband would be up on the night train, whereupon five men quietly slid under the table. The moral. Nothing ever happens in a boarding house. Or anywhere else for that matter. All right, hold it there. You, you see, if if uh, oh, is there anything on the on the uh, log for me there? Check with Jack. Got check here. Um. You know, uh, if if there is such a thing as, uh, oh, I suppose you might call a theme, uh, we are taking tonight, brother, as our text, we are taking tonight the existence among us of the mole people and uh, the danger pertaining thereto. Now, I, I'm I'm quite convinced that hardly anybody who is a mole people knows he is, and yet I'm also equally convinced that there isn't a single one of us 
walking around today who doesn't suspect that he himself isn't the mole people. I mean, you know, who, who, who he himself doesn't feel. Have, have you ever had the feeling that that that, uh, that somehow the blossoms blossom blossomier, or somehow the pulse beats harder? Have you ever really wondered about the lives of other people, actually? Really wondered about it? I mean, about the real things. You know, you know the kind of stuff you never talk about. The stuff you never discuss with anybody? Have you ever wondered about this side of other people? Or do you pretend that it doesn't exist with those other people? <laughs> I can already hear the letter now. Is it because when these letters come in, you hear them, Dad? They just lay there on the desk and holler, Dear Mr. Shepherd, I have no idea what you're talking about. And as far as the part of my life that I do not discuss, there is nothing in my life that I am not afraid to discuss. And as a matter of fact, I was telling Charles the other day, get rid of that idiot on the radio. What's he talking about? Get some nice music. I'm a John Gambling fan, and I like good things. Signed, an indignant ex-WOR listener. Yes, that's true, baby. I'm afraid that is true. Woe be tied to those who have nothing in their lives that they couldn't talk about. Oh. But you know, when you sit there in the bus, and there was a very funny little odd moment happened today. I, it was a very... No, no, it isn't an odd moment. There is a kind of secret communication that exists between people. Uh, I think it's between people... I, I, I don't know. I, I guess... I, I don't know what the reverse of the mole people would be called. I suppose... Measuring us with what is available, I suppose the reverse of the mole people, or the obverse, I suppose you could say, of the mole people, or the ant people. Most of us are ant people. And then on the other hand, I, I, I'm inclined sometimes to say most of us are mole people. Once in a while... Stalking among the ants and over the moles comes the giant who could roughly be called a grasshopper person. <laughs> Once in a while jumps up in the air, you know. I mean, as as compared to the tigers we could be. I mean, we could really be tigers. I mean, do you realize what we've got the world by right now at this point? Mankind? You know what it is we got the world by. I don't have to tell you. Oh, yeah. But we're gonna we're gonna fool around, and the next thing you know, guess what's gonna have us by? You know what? Yeah. yeah just because we're you know we're fooling around, we're standing around scratching, hollering. Okay, you shove that, and I'll shove back. The next thing you know, the principal's gonna come out, and we're all gonna be up. Well, you know you you know you know about the creek. You've been there. And uh, believe me, Dad, there ain't going to be no Abercrombie and Fitch at the other end selling paddles. I can tell you that. Okay? All right, are we on the same wavelength here? We understand each other? All right. Then well, what is it? It's up to my bloomin' knickers, you know, already. And we are just in the shallows. Where do we get out there where, that <laughs> where the rapids start? 
you know. Sometimes I have a feeling uh, I, I'm in this little canoe, you know, speaking little canoes. I have a favorite little canoe in my mind that keeps popping up. It's a little canoe that my grandmother had. It was a little phony birch bark canoe. A little tidy one, you know. It fascinated me when I was about six. A little birch bark canoe. And the ends of it were stitched with red imitation leather, you know, stitches around it. And there was this little phony Indian sitting there. And he had this little paddle. He had a paddle, which is more than I can say for most of us. But he was the same place, you know. His paddle never touched whatever it was he was trying to row in. He was holding it up there at High Port. And he's looking out over the... over the, And underneath it, it said Hiawatha. Hiawatha. Souvenir of Alden, Illinois. Souvenir of Alden, Illinois. Uh, as far as I know, Hiawatha didn't come within a thousand miles of Alden, Illinois. But that didn't stop the citizens of Alden, Illinois with associating themselves with greatness. So I used to look at that little canoe there, and that little canoe was on the library table. You know what is a library table? Uh, to my knowledge, a book never entered my grandmother's house, including even a Bible. In fact, she even objected to the Chicago phone book come in there. She didn't believe in reading. Said reading hurt your eyes. Not only did it hurt your eyes, put funny ideas in your head. Sometimes I have a feeling like I'm I'm putting funny ideas into your head out there. I don't want to put no funny ideas into your head. And so I'd come there and I'd look over the top of that library table, which was covered with a Paisley shawl. Paisley being the name of the woman who sold shawls in the neighborhood, Emma L. Paisley. Large, heavy-set woman who wore squeaky shoes. Health shoes, you know. You know, the kind that strapped in the back and had buckles on the front and had three low heels on each foot. You know, the kind of woman who at the age of seven was already nursing mankind. Now, she made Paisley shawls. Have, have you ever wondered how the name came to be Paisley? Did they call him Paisley out here? It was her mama. Paisley. She worked with uh, Easter egg coloring. Produced a terrible shawl, but she meant well. And right in the middle of this library table was this Indian. And by the way, on the other end of the Paisley shawl was another Indian. Died right into the Paisley shawl, and this one said, Souvenir of Kankakee, Illinois. Big for Indians around there. I used to watch those Indian pictures. And in my grandmother's bedroom, there was a picture of an Indian. The only picture she had in her house, outside of a picture of a waterfall that hung over the top of a calendar. And this picture, and now I, I may be wrong, it just seemed to me in my childish imagination that there was such a picture, although I, I can't comprehend the picture being painted of this kind. There was an Indian, and he was sitting on a horse, and he was looking down kind of depressed-like, like a fuller brush man at the end of the long trail. You could see the sunset or the sunrise. It was hard to tell which because these pictures were of a peculiar coloration. And underneath it, it said, The End of the Trail. And it hung over my grandmother's bed and my grandfather's bed. These two people who came, certainly not from Chicago, but who had lived all their lives on, the, on, that, on that, long, that long sandy sward overlooking that great lake that hung down there like a, like a gigantic grape. Hanging there on the bottom end of Canada. 
Somehow they got hooked on Indians. Well, being a kid, I got hooked on canoes. And, and it's funny, funny thing. One day I came in to see our boss here, and I said, Boss, it's about time, don't you think so? He knew what I meant. It was, you know, he knew what I meant. I was kind of nudging him. It's about time, you know. And he looked at me and he said, don't push your luck. Oh, I said, come on, Bob, come on, for crying out loud. What's gambling got that I haven't got? Just one more crack out of you and you are going to have to start hunting for a paddle. And immediately I see this little birch bark canoe. <laughs> and you know, funny thing about it, the cockles of my heart warmed. And because, you know, I'm a sentimental cuss. You know me. Sentimental old cuss. He and I have been just like that ever since. I don't talk much about it anymore. But I'll tell you what I do keep behind my desk. I keep this small folding paddle. Because you never know when all of a sudden the floodgates are going to open. Are you still out there? Oh, mole people. Oh, ant one. Oh, grasshopper. Which beest thou, though, thee thou dost them? In thy travail? How is it out there in the vineyards tonight, huh? I'm sitting in the bus. Like I say, there's a kind of... Uh, there must be a communication between the ants. As I'm perfectly aware, there is a communication between the moles. And there must even be communication between the grasshoppers. Although I can but stand and admire a grasshopper from afar. <laughs> You're the one that said it, not me. I'm sitting down the bus tonight. Snow is swirling down. Oh, it's a great night, by the way. The snow is swirling down around that bus. And I'm, I'm sitting there. And um, there was this person looking out of the window. And he's looking out. Just a guy. Ordinary sort of lout-looking type. He's looking out, but I can see he's digging. You know? He's looking out at 6th Avenue, there, and he's, he's somehow it's there. I'm looking down the aisle, and I'm digging the scene, too. He, he looks over at me, shrugs. I shrug. I never saw this guy in my life. He turns back, looks out of the window, and continues to dig. Reading the Chinese restaurant signs as, as the bus moved. Once in a while, pick up a, picking up a big sign. My favorite sign on 6th Avenue is a big sign that has a, has a, has a, has a big neon hand. Just a great big neon palm. And it says, uh, says underneath it, it said, uh, in doubt about your future? Tea readings free. Luncheon served. Big neon palm on the second floor. And above it is an enormous sign. It says, for the truth, for hard-hitting news, it's channel two every time. <laughs> so once in a while we drive past there, you know, on the bus, and I get reassured. And so this guy's looking out the window there, and I'm waiting to see if he digs this. And sure enough, he looks up there and he just sort of digs. You know? That's the end of it. End of story. 
Are there any ants out there? I'd like to hear from an ant. Well, <laughs> one thing about grasshoppers, though, is that I, I suspect about... Of course, I, I must... I have to admit that probably I'm a grasshopper most of the time because I, I think this about grasshoppers. They're too busy jumping around and hollering to really communicate. You see, the mole, because of his moleness, has instant communication with other moles. Even though the communication is on such a deep, primal level that the only time he feels warm is when he is marching over some sad, heroic cliff together with all the other moles. Then he knoweth. Oh, oh speaking of uh, knowing, I got this here little thing I, I like to like to show you here if you don't mind it was uh, it was once said by uh, George Aid who said it better than most people ever do yes yes uh, well I don't know whether I should bring it up you know that sometimes you, you, you figure you better not say it see because well it it can get dangerous well, all right. All right, I'll, I'll say it. No, I better not. I can tell you that the moral to the fable, maybe I better not tell you the fable. You can build the fable yourself. The moral to the fable is the reaction is something terrible. like this for a, for a name of a fable. Speaking of the ants. Interested. Uh, the patient toiler who got it in the usual place. Once there was an office employee with a copybook education. He believed it was his duty to learn to labor and to wait. He read pamphlets and magazine articles on success and how to make it a cinch. He knew that if he made no no changes and never beefed for more salary, but just buckled down and put in extra time and pulled for the house, he would arrive in time. The faithful worker wanted to be department manager. The hours were short, the salary large, and the work easy. He plugged on for many moons, keeping his eye on that roll-top desk, for the manager was getting into the has-been division, and he knew there must be a vacancy soon. At last, the house gave the old manager the privilege of retiring and living on whatever pittance he had saved. Ah, this is where humble merit gets its reward, said the patient toiler. I can see myself now counting money. That very day, the main gazooks led into the office one of the handsomest tennis players that ever worked on Long Island and introduced him all around as the new department manager. I shall expect you to tell Archibald all about the business, said the main gazooks to our patient toiler. You see, he has just graduated from Yale, and he doesn't know a thing about managing anything except a cat boat. And his father is one of our principal stockholders, and he is engaged to a young woman whose uncle is the head of the trust. I had been hoping to get this job for myself, said the faithful worker faintly. You are so valuable as a subordinate, and have shown such an aptitude for detailed work that it would be a shame to waste you on a big job, said the main gazooks. Besides, you are not equipped. You have not been to Yale. 
Your father is not a stockbroker. You are not engaged to a trust. Get back to your high stool, and whatever Archibald wants to know, you tell him. Moral, one who wishes to be a figurehead should not overtrain. Thank <laughs> you.